Good morning, everybody. I'm excited to continue in this uh, series that we're in together on unbelievers and what it looks like to follow Jesus and our relationship with unbelievers. This is a core value at the Gospel tab uh, that we prioritize our relationships with unbelievers because we believe that that's what Jesus did as well. And you hear the theme even today in what we're talking about and how God sought us and saved us and found us. Um, And so today's passage is going to be in Matthew 18. Um, If you could turn there, Matthew 18, we're just going to read three verses today. Um, But it's a a teaching of Jesus. And I I just want to say to the room, um, if you've been you know, part of this the last few weeks, and we're going to stay in this series until Pentecost Sunday when our uh, campuses recombine and we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. And that's going to be a a good service the first week of June. Um, But um, I just want to acknowledge that you you might be here today and not consider yourself a believer or a follower in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know you're welcome here. And wherever you are in that journey, whatever that's looking like for you, um, I don't know what it's like for you to listen in on a series like this um, with the questions that you might bring or um, the experiences that you have with church or with God. Um, But I really believe in us just being who we are. We were talking about this last week, how Paul says, I've renounced shameful and deceptive ways, and now we just hold out the truth of the gospel to people's conscience. Um, you know, early on, when we first really started interacting with believers in our community, there was a season where we would have a, have a prayer gathering on Sunday night at John and Galfua Jordan's house down on Franklin Avenue, actually next door to where now, as of a week ago, me and Chelsea are living. And uh, once in a while, uh, an unbeliever would show up at that gathering, someone who had not yet decided to follow Jesus. And I remember early on thinking like, oh, we got to change everything that we are doing tonight, you know, or something. Like, we have to act differently, you know, because there's, there's, you know, someone here who might believe something different than we do. And our opinion on that just really changed. I think the people of God are called just to be themselves. Um, and so if you've been listening in on this series and you're not sure what you believe, you belong here, you can be yourself, and we're going to be ourselves. And I trust that, like, God is working in that somehow. Um, and speaking in that somehow um, for you. So it's been a theme the last few weeks that if the clearest picture we have of God is Jesus, Jesus is God in human flesh, and Jesus states in different ways and different times and places in the record that we have of his ministry that he prioritized his relationships with unbelievers, then this tells us something of what God is like. And so today, we're going to look at this teaching of Jesus, this little picture that Jesus gives about a shepherd and his sheep, and how it teaches us something about the heart of God. And as best as we can tell, I I imagine at least that this was a teaching, um, this this little saying that that we have recorded in the book of Matthew was something that Jesus said uh, repetitively. I think it's something that he would have said to his disciples or said to his listeners. We have it recorded in a couple of different places in different contexts. It's interesting. Uh, what we're going to read today, there's very similar verses to these verses in Matthew, um, very similar verses in the Gospel of Luke. And those may actually 
be the verses that you're very familiar with in Luke chapter 15. In that passage, some of the religious leaders are muttering. We were talking about that a couple weeks ago. And the complaint is that Jesus spends too much of his time with sinners. That Jesus spends too much of his time with people who are far from God. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but if you really start to spend your time with people who are far from God, I don't completely understand the psychology of it. If it's jealousy or insecurity or what, but along the way, you probably will run into some religious people um, who will feel some type of way about that and how you spend your time. This was true of Jesus. He was getting this complaint all the time. It's interesting because on one hand, the religious leaders don't really like Jesus, and yet they almost sound jealous of him. It's a convoluted thing that's happening. It's like, why does he spend, like, for someone that they don't like, they're very concerned about how they spend t- he spends time with people who aren't them, you know? Um, and then that feeds into them not liking him. It's just this cycle of insecurity, how the, how the religious leaders, um, you know, relate to Jesus. So in that passage in Luke, they're complaining, and Jesus responds to their complaint by going into a series of stories. There's this story about sheep being lost, which we're going to read here, Matthew's version. There's a story about a woman who loses a coin and fervently seeks to find it. All of these stories are demonstrating what God is like. And then you may be familiar with this story, the story of the prodigal son. It kind of culminates or crescendos in the gospel of Luke in the story of the prodigal son. So the son leaves his father, is welcomed home. Um, It's interesting because in Matthew's gospel, there's very similar teaching, particularly about sheep. It's repeated almost word for word. But the context is different. It's not the religious leaders complaining. This is actually a whole section of Jesus' teaching on children. And Jesus says a few things about children in the gospel of Matthew. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, he says to his hearers, then you must become like little children. Then he gives some warnings toward those who would hurt or abuse children. Um, And now he gets into this thing about sheep, and it's kind of in this section about children. And I think the reason that's notable is because very often in the ancient world, and especially true among the Romans, but you probably could have found it among the Jewish religious leaders as well, um, very many times in the ancient world, children were not held in high regard. It was not part of the cultural makeup to pay attention to what children would say or to hold them in high regard or to even care for their welfare. There were actually all these practices, especially in the Roman Empire, that really put children at risk. Um, And so Jesus flips all of that. When he teaches about the kingdom of God, this is a theme all throughout his teaching. He's always saying we got to become like children, that children are valuable in the kingdom, that children can come to him in the kingdom. It's a clue that the kingdom of God and this kingdom's king, Jesus, do not value the same things that we typically value. That there's a shift in priority. That if, for a lot of people in the ancient world, children are somewhere near the bottom of the list of priority. That in the kingdom, children are actually at the top. The same is true, actually, for the poor or the weak or sinners who are outside of the practice of faith. There's something in the kingdom of God that's always prioritizing the things that we don't prioritize. Um, And Jesus' words here about a shepherd and his sheep uh, 
um, demonstrate that perfectly, that Jesus' priorities are not exactly what we would expect. Now, today, to explore this passage, I'm going to pull out um, something that I haven't for a while, but I just thought it would be good for review in this passage, line itself to it. In different places in the Life of the Gospel tab, there's four questions that we use to study the scriptures. They actually added a fifth that you could take with it too. And sometimes I want to do this with you. Number one, because it's such a simple way to study the scriptures. Uh, but secondly, it empowers you to study the scriptures with other people. So if you ever find yourself in a place where you want to gather with some other people and study the word of God, or you find yourself leading some other people, believers, unbelievers, into an experience with the word of God, these four questions are super helpful. They're super simple, too. A little bit of a tangent, but if I can say this. Guys, there's this paradox with the Bible where, on one hand, it is immeasurably rich and deep. We could spend our whole lives studying the Scripture, and there's always something new to learn about it, and that ought to be humbling for us. On the other hand, there's another characteristic of Scripture that it is exceedingly simple. Um, even, even so that children can understand it. We just dismissed our kids downstairs where they're going to learn something from the scriptures because we believe that even their minds and hearts can wrap around the scriptures. I just heard a story this last week when I was in Indianapolis of a missionary who was involved overseas um, with a tribe of people who had never had the word of God translated into their language. And get this, their language only had 600 words in it. Think about that. It was a language with only 600 words. And because of where this group of people lived, most of the words had to do with fishing, right? <laughs> so 600 words, and still those missionaries were able to translate the word of God somehow into this language. There's way more than 600 words in the Bible, but they found that they were able to even translate the concepts. I find that like mind-blowing to think about what the scriptures actually are and aren't and how God has stooped down to us to communicate to us in ways that we can hopefully understand who he is, something of his mystery and of his grace. So especially as we follow Jesus on mission, sometimes I think we don't do the Bible justice when we overcomplicate it. And increasingly, um, in our circles, we are, we are getting the privilege of getting to walk beside people who sometimes aren't the best readers. That might be you. That might be your experience. You might be here this morning. Um, I think we have to learn to be people who know how to tell the stories of Scripture, even if someone doesn't know how to read or isn't the best reader of Scripture. If, if we make the Bible only accessible to people who have advanced academic degrees and things like that, I think we're missing the heart of God in giving us the scriptures. So that's my two cents on that. So that's why I want you to know uh, these four questions. We're going to read this short passage of scripture. I would love it if you read it with me out loud today. Um, and we can just read it together here. So read with me. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So he gives us this picture 
of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, one wanders off, and it would have been obvious to the hearers then what the priority of that shepherd would be, which would be to leave the 99, we just sang about it, to leave the 99 and go after the one that, and, and I want to point out, it has nothing to do about the love of that shepherd or the concern of that shepherd for each one of his sheep. It's just that when one is lost, the priority of the shepherd becomes crystal clear. That it's this one sheep over the 99 that the heart of the shepherd is going to be drawn to. And it's going to change the agenda of that shepherd's day. It's going to change what that shepherd thinks about. It's going to change where that shepherd goes. It's going to change how that shepherd acts. It's going to change even how that shepherd prays. Have you ever lost something and prayed for it? I don't know if shepherds pray for their sheep, but I've prayed for my wallet before. You know what I mean? So it's like it's going to change the desires and the actions of that shepherd. I think this is a, a little thought that Jesus would have shared frequently with his disciples that this is what God is like, and it would have described Jesus' own mission as God in the flesh as well. So here's our four questions, just to remind you. Oh, I added a fifth, but I think it's up there on the screen. Who is God in this passage? Simple, simple question to ask. Who is God? Who does he reveal himself to be? Who am I in this passage? So in light of who God is, who am I? We discern our identity, not by just absorbing the messages of identity that are around us, but by understanding who we are in light of who God is. Since God is our creator, our, our identity is only found in him. And then, what is God saying to me, making it personal? So what is God saying to me or to us out of this passage? What am I going to do about it? This is maybe the most important question, to really grow in our faith in Jesus and our experience of the gospel it is in the doing. It's as we do what we've heard in the Word of God. There's lots of examples, people in churches um, who have great knowledge of the Scriptures, but never experience something that, that we would call spiritual breakthrough uh, because they never do it, right? It just becomes accumulated knowledge and knowledge transfer, but it's in doing it that we experience who God is. And then I had this fifth question. It's just another question of action. Who am I going to tell about this? Um, it might be a good question for you to challenge yourself with as you read the scriptures. If you want to learn to start talking to people about Jesus, we've been giving these little challenges in these series. I'm just taking the step to even mention the name of Jesus in a conversation or with a friend, particularly an unbelieving friend. But maybe a good start for you is to read the scriptures or to hear the scriptures taught in a setting like this and to purpose in your heart that you will share with somebody else what God spoke to you. And maybe at first, that's believers, that's okay. Um, it's still a step in you getting more comfortable talking to other people about Jesus. And then I've learned this from Michael and Brooke years ago, to begin talking to your unbelieving friends, just like you talk to your believing friends. So if you would meet with your believing friends and be like, hey, I've been praying about this thing and God answered, um, to learn to start talking that way around your unbelieving friends too. Hey, I've been praying about this thing and God answered. That's, that doesn't feel like you're like preaching at them. So you're just sharing who you are. It's what Paul says. We are who we are, right? And we just commend it to people's conscience. Well, you can do that with the word of God as well. And you can just, you can just say to your believing friends, hey, I read this, I heard this. Here's what I'm doing out of my life because of it. You can do that with your unbelieving friends too. And that may feel more like a risk 
but these little steps are good to take as we're learning to prioritize unbelievers. So let's answer some of these questions. Who is God? I think it's pretty clear, this is a really simple passage, that in this story where the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one, and then finds it and brings it back, and experiences the joy of bringing this sheep back, that God positions himself in this story and in human history as both seeker and finder. And those are overlapping but distinct things. First of all, that he is seeker. That he is moved with compassion to want to look for us. And then, not only does he do that, but he is successful in the seeking. He finds as well. So Jesus tells us not a story about a shepherd who seeks and doesn't find, but about a shepherd who seeks and finds. That his love leads him into the seeking, first of all, but then makes him also successful in the finding. Um, And this is how God has related to humanity from the beginning. Jesus is giving us this little snippet in this passage, this word picture, to help us understand what God is like. But honestly, we can see it throughout all the pages of history. Look at the, the first humans recorded in the scripture who sinned, Adam and Eve. After their sin... And, and they are hiding from God, trying to cover themselves and hide from God because that's what sin causes us to do is to hide in shame. What happens? God comes to the garden in that story in Genesis to seek and to find. And he does both. He reaches out to Adam and Eve. And then he finds them and initiates a conversation with them. More than that, he covers them because sin has a way of breaking our relationships with one another. Sin is always a social event. It's not just me personally and me and God. It always affects the relationship around, uh, relationships around me. Even the sins I do in secret affect the relationships around me. And so Adam and Eve were once very comfortable to be themselves naked in each other's presence, now feel the shame that sin has caused, the breaking of their relationship, and they try the best they can. Can you imagine trying to cover yourself when you haven't even seen clothes before, right? And they're trying to do it with some leaves. I'm imagining this wasn't the most functional clothing, you know? And so they try to cover themselves with some leaves. Well, God ends up making clothes for them to cover them. It's one of the first things we learn about God in the scriptures is that God covers sinners. Likewise, not long after Adam and Eve's original betrayal, their sons, Cain and Abel, experience a fracture in their relationship. And Cain murders Abel, if you remember the story in the book of Genesis. And there again, even after that terrible act where one brother kills another brother in cold blood, God seeks and finds Cain. While Cain is on the run, God seeks and finds him. And as a matter of fact, God offers to Cain his protection because Cain then is fearing for his own life, which is also an effect of sin. That after we commit it, we often become afraid of it, of its consequence. It creates this cycle of fear. And God intervenes and protects even Cain, the murderer. And so these are some of the first things we learn about God. That God covers sinners. That God protects sinners. That God seeks sinners. That God finds sinners. And it makes us wonder why the religious leaders and why we miss it so often that this has always been God's priority. The religious leaders of Jesus' day who never imagined that God would be like this. If he came in the flesh, that the Messiah would be like this, this man 
who is always prioritizing sinners and the lost, always wanting to be around them, always seeking them, it makes you wonder, how did they miss it? How do we miss it? Because this is who God is on every page of Scripture. He's always moving toward the sinner. He's always giving His grace to the sinner. He is always finding the sinner. This is who God is. So then who are we in light of who God is? Well, if God is seeker and finder, then we are both the sought and the found. We are sought. Friends, some of you need to hear this today because you wonder if anybody sees you. You need to know you are sought by God. It's actually part of your identity that you are sought by Him. That it's not just about like you're finding Him. It's about His seeking you. He sought you. And if you're in the faith, and if you've responded um, to that seeking, and if you've received what God is giving, then you are among the found too. All of us in this room, fundamentally, for followers of Jesus Christ, are that. We are sought and we are found. We have our own stories and their own unique ways of the people, circumstances, supernatural events that are testimonies to how God revealed himself to us, just like he did to Adam and Eve and Cain, just like he was doing with the sinners that Jesus is eating with and partying with. He found us. And that shapes our identity. There's a lot I could say about that, but I want to move in some other directions today. But can I just say that to be fundamentally in our identity sought, to be fundamentally in our identity found, to be fundamentally in our identity loved, all of that is to say that fundamentally in our identity, we are what we've received from God. We are not fundamentally what we've made or created, or accomplished, or did, or didn't do. We are fundamentally what we've been given. God gives his identity to us. And that's how our souls and minds begin to be shaped in grace. This whole thing from beginning to end is about his grace. We are receivers of his compassion. Now, I would think that if that's true, if that's our identity, that we are the sought and we are the found, then that should profoundly shape who we are as the people of God, who we are as the church. Because if I've been sought and I've been found, then my response, and I know that, then my response ought to be gratitude and to cooperate with God in that seeking and finding. Because this is what he's been doing. If he found us, it was so that we could be with him And to be with him is to be with him in the seeking and the finding. Because that's what we learn in Jesus. That's what God is doing in the world today. If we want to be with God in the world today, then we'll be with him in the seeking and finding. It does make me ask then why, at least in the American church, maybe less true in other parts of the world, but it does make me ask why in the American church is it so rare to find a church that is actually prioritizing the lost. First of all, that cares. Secondly, that has relationships with unbelievers. Third, would unashamedly say that this is our priority, is seeking the unbelievers so much our priority that we're going to shape everything toward it. Why is that so rare? 
Why does it seem like we can find so few examples of that? And really, the reason I'm bringing this up, this moment in the American church, is not to be overly critical because none of us are compassionate enough, truly. None of us care enough. None of us prioritize enough. So I don't mean to to criticize churches and church leaders. Um, That's not really my point. Maybe it's this, that maybe our lack of compassion for unbelievers says something about our lack of reflection or maybe even deeper, our lack of experience of who God is. I don't think the answer to whatever our apathy is in mission, I, don't, I really don't believe the answer is just a pep rally and a try harder talk and a guilt trip. And I've been in all of those places following Jesus on mission. I don't, I don't think it really works It might work for a little bit. If I preach that way in front of you, maybe it would work for a minute, but it definitely won't sustain you through the ups and downs of following Jesus. It just won't. The setbacks, the times when we wonder if he's hearing our prayers, even for our unbelieving friends, it won't get you through those times. The only thing that I know that calls us into the mission and keeps us on mission is this ongoing experience of his love, this ongoing gratitude for what he's done, for seeking and finding us. And as we do that, we find ourselves being with him and following him on the mission. Maybe it's a worship problem, a gratitude problem that leads to our apathy. But I'll let you reflect on that further. Our third question, what is God saying to me? I'm actually not going to answer this question for you this morning. Uh, There's some particular things that God is saying to me out of this passage. But I just want to leave space for you to answer this question as you leave from here today. Knowing that you are sought and found and that to be with him is to be in the seeking and the finding. What is God saying to you in this moment, in this service, in this season? Maybe it's just something about his love for you. This passage is gospel to us. It is good news to us for people who wandered off from God and who are lost, the passage that we just read is good news for us. And maybe that's the word of gospel, the word of good news that you need to hear today. Or maybe it is something about the people around you, your unbelieving friends, the unbelievers in your workplace and school and neighborhood. Maybe it's something about unbelievers around the world who don't even have access to a Christian who could tell them about Jesus. I'll let God fill that space with his voice for you today as we're in this series about what God might be saying to you. But I do want to spend some time just talking for a minute about the fourth question, what am I going to do about it? Not by telling you what to do about it, because what you do about it will come out of what you feel God is saying to you. This is why we often pray here at the Gospel Tab, speak, Lord, your servants are listening, or... What's next, God? We love to ask God these questions because it leads us to action in the world. So for you, it might have specific implications that you walk out of here thinking about. If this is so Jesus' priority, what does that mean about the priorities of my life? If the shepherd dropped everything to go seek the lost, what does that mean for me and my use of time and resources and relationship? That's going to look different for every single person in this room. But what I do want to do in response to this fourth question is tell you some quick stories 
about some people who I know personally who right now are trying to figure out the answer to this question. And I want you to see how simple it is because this is our third week talking about God's priority for unbelievers. And just like sometimes we um, overcomplicate the scriptures, I think sometimes we overcomplicate mission as well. And I just want to share with you about three friends. It didn't take me long to think of just three people who recently shared with me some stories about how this question, what am I going to do about it? I read Matthew 18. What am I going to do about it? How this question is getting played out in their lives. So I have one friend who sent me a text just the other night. She's been participating in some of our trainings, both here at the tab and um, at the lab down on Franklin Avenue. You just heard the announcement about the calling lab that's going to be offered from that organization. And she has showed up at these trainings talking about what it means to follow Jesus on mission. And I got this great text from her the other night. She said, Joel, she comes from a family. She's the only believer in her family, I believe. And, uh, and she said that the other night, her sister and her sister's friend were over at her house. They were hanging out. She said it was really late. They actually thought it was going to be wrapping up. She was tired, ready to go to bed. And her sister ended up sharing with her about the profound sense of depression and meaningless that she's been feeling. And this will make sense to you if you've been any, to any of our trainings on sharing the gospel or mission. As she said in her text to me, she said, all of a sudden it clicked with me in my mind, this is this person's bad news, right? The word gospel means good news. And so when we share the good news, with a person or a community, we're sharing the particular good news of Jesus to that particular person's bad news. And so it made my friend start to think, okay, if the bad news of this person is meaningless, the sense of meaninglessness, among other things, then part of the good news of Jesus, a facet of this gospel that has been entrusted to us, is that God has given this, purpose, this person purpose, her sister purpose. And she said, you know, I don't know if she believes it or not, but I just got to say to her, hey, I think that God designed you with purpose. And in that moment, as simple as that is, she's preaching good news to this person's bad news in a particular way. And then her sister's friend looked at her and said, how long have you been following Jesus? And, and this person, she said, way past her bedtime, just got to tell her story about how Jesus sought her and found her. And she said in the text, she said it didn't end with these two like on their knees, like repenting or something like that. She said, but I know God was doing something special in that moment. He was seeking, right? And he was finding, just noticing how God, we've been talking in this series about noticing how God is working with spiritual seekers. If somebody asks the question to you, how long have you known God? To some extent, right? There's some kind of seeking in her heart, and she stepped into that moment. I have another friend um, who likes to hold a party at her house during the summer to invite her closest friends to, and a lot of her closest friends are believers, but after spending some time around the gospel tab and spending time in relationships with people who are living this way, it just occurred to her. She came to me and said, hey, the next time I hold this party, I'm going to invite some of the neighbors on my street who I think are unbelievers. Friends, as simple as that is, any of us can do that. It doesn't require starting an organization. It doesn't require getting training. It requires sharing your chips and dip, right, with an unbelieving friend. 
but just extending the table, as simple as that is, that is so much like Jesus. I have another friend who's involved um, outside of Aliquippa in the city of Pittsburgh, um, and he shared with me uh, recently about a guy who had been highlighted in his life. Um, and by highlighted, I just mean that he noticed this guy, that's all, and he felt like God was in it. But this guy lived across the street from him in an apartment building, and he was le- often leaving his apartment building and getting in his car, and my friend would see him, right, across the street. Um, and my friend came to him, guys, this is what I mean, like, mission is about these small, small steps. And I want you to feel that and see that this morning. He came to me and said, um, I really want to say hello to him, right? A lot of times mission can feel just like that, like starting to just say hello to someone, right? He said, I feel like I should say hello to him, but it feels a little awkward because he's always like heading towards his car. And I said, man, I'm going to pray with you, you know, that you get the courage and the door opens up. And what my friend did, I'd encourage any of you to do, that if you feel like God is leading you to take one of these simple steps toward the life of an unbeliever, tell somebody. If you've ever been in our trainings on the Kairos Circle, we talk about this. Tell someone about that step that you want to take and ask them to pray for you, you know, in it, as simple as it is. So I entered into prayer with my friend. We call that accountability. And sure enough, within a couple weeks, he had said hello to his neighbor. An act of mission seeking and finding. As simple as that is, written all over that story, is Jesus' words, I came to seek and save the lost. As simple as that story is, it's so different than living in our neighborhoods or wherever God has put you, your school, workplace, only for our benefit and only thinking about ourselves. My friend, because of Jesus, because he's sought and he's found, is paying attention to his neighbor across the street who's getting into a car. That same friend decided to host a party at his house. And there's another guy in the neighborhood that he's gotten to know. I think he's been a lot more um, uh, easy to get to know, outgoing uh, personality. Um, But this guy is gay and he told my friend right at the beginning, he said, don't ever invite me to your church. I'm not interested in going to church. I want nothing to do. It's just how he viewed the church. And my friend has respected that, but he did hold a party at his house. And apparently this guy makes phenomenal desserts. And twice now, this guy has showed up at my friend's house for his parties to provide these outstanding desserts to the party. Um, And it's just gathering these individuals around tables. It's gathering these individuals into neighborhoods, into our lives. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you today that very often the seeking, like we're using this word seeking and finding, very often it's just these small acts of inclusion. Including an unbelieving friend in a conversation, being willing to stay up a little bit later at night including our neighbors in our summer barbecue cookouts, um, including the neighbor across the street who's getting in their car into our hellos and greetings in our neighborhood. It's just these very small acts. That is mission. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it's not. That is what it's like to follow Jesus on mission. It's just to pay attention and be in relationship with our unbelieving friends. So if following Jesus, if the seeking is the small acts of inclusion, I would say it often looks like these small acts of presence. Now, hopefully, 
Um, I just shared with you some relatable stories. This story might seem less relatable. I don't know, or maybe it does relate to you. I don't know. Um, But it is a story in my life, and and I want to make a point in it. Um, Some of you know that I talk about all the time. For years, we've gone to this community in South Central Florida, Belglade, um, to experience Jesus there on mission. But for me, uh, some of the value in Belglade, for those of you who have gone, has been, it, it's kind of this like intense case study in a week in following Jesus on mission, not because going on mission trips, it, like that that summarizes what it means to follow Jesus on mission. Like that's just a church. Like if we really are sought and found, then a church is not going to summarize what it means to be on mission by following Jesus on a mission trip once a year, right? As valuable as that is, this needs to go into our everyday lives. However, you should go on a mission trip because sometimes when we do, it lets us realize how to, getting into a new context lets us realize how Jesus is working on mission and then we can come home and, and learn how to follow him in the place where we are. Well, in the early years of going to Belglade, I have a pretty outgoing personality and so... Um, that means that like we would get out there and I'd be saying hello to every single person I could see and seeing if we could pray for them. We saw lots of, you know, healings and God speak to people. And over the years, we have this repository of stories of seeing Jesus at work on the street. But can I tell you what one of my favorite things to do in Belglade is now at this point in my ministry? And I got to do this with some friends recently. There's a soup kitchen in Belglade. Belglade's a very visibly broken place. And outside of that soup kitchen, every day at 11.30, this whole crowd of people gathers. And a lot of them are homeless. A lot of them um, have a battle with mental health issues. A lot of them are struggling with addictions. And if, if you go and spend time in that line outside of the, the soup kitchen uh, before the meal starts, um, you really very visibly will see just some of what is most broken in humanity. Um, what, what amazing creatures we are. We can so much reflect God and also experience such profound brokenness. Maybe it's because we reflect God so much that the brokenness is so profound. Um, but that's what this place is like. As a matter of fact, early on, I used to like to go and serve in that soup kitchen. I'm still willing to do that. But now, one of my favorite things to do is just to go and sit there near that line. Not try to talk to anybody not trying to serve anybody a meal. I believe in all that stuff with all my heart, but I like to go and just sit. Why? Because the, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I'm seeing that this is what seeking and finding looks like. That God came and made himself present with us, physically laid eyes on our brokenness, laid eyes on what was wrong with us. And I don't know how relatable that is to you because maybe you don't have a soup kitchen that you can go and do that at. If you can find one, that's great too. But that's not even the point of the story. The point is that part of the seeking and finding is just being present in a way that we can see. It's being present with our neighbors in their pain. It's being present in our schools and the issues that face those schools. It's just being there, not necessarily to fix anything or certainly not to manipulate anything, but just to see And I think that as we include and as we see these opportunities open up for us to be in relationship with our unbelieving friends and tell them the good news of Jesus. And this is one of the joys for me of following Jesus on mission. I'm going to close with this. Is that as we realize our identity as sought and found people, 
the shepherd leaves the 99 for the one and that that's what Jesus did for me. And to be with Jesus now as one who is found means that I'm going to be with him in the seeking and finding because that's what God is like. That's what he's still doing in the world. Then it means that I get to bear witness to the seeking and the finding. Increasingly for me, friends, following Jesus on mission is not about making anything happen. It is about gently including. It is about being present. And it is about just bearing witness to the thing that God is doing in the world. I think I've said it a couple times in this series, but it's a pretty common experience for me that um, somebody, a young guy in the community, will send me a text with either a rap song that they've been listening to, um, or they'll record into the memo a few bars of something that, that they have strung together, some words. Um, and I always pay attention to this when it happens because it's part of how these guys are expressing to me their emotions and their feelings. Well, sure enough, I woke up to one of those uh, voice memo things this morning. Um, and I listened to it when I got here to the church. That I woke up to this text that said, hey, bro, I know you won't judge. Um, I want you to listen to this. And he was saying that because there's a lot of cuss words in it and stuff. But it's how he's feeling. Well, in, he was grieving a lot of things, including the loss of some friends to the street. But in, in this song that he wrote, uh, he mentioned the first and last name of somebody who I hadn't thought about for a little while, but he mentioned this individual by name. Um, let me tell you about this individual real quick. And this got added to my sermon this morning because it's what I woke up to. Uh, this, the individual that he mentioned who was shot and killed in the streets right at the beginning of the pandemic... And by the way, you can really pray for our area right now, certainly Aliquippa, but there's some other towns as well. Uh, so many unsolved murders right now in Beaver County. And uh, something is wrong. Um, it should not be this way. So not only are our communities experience death, but there's no resolution to it. You know, there's no understanding the story of what happened. So uh, this guy was shot and killed. No one has been arrested. Nobody, you know, claims to know what what has happened. But let me tell you something about this guy who was shot and killed. I didn't know him that well, although his number was in my phone. You know why his number was in my phone? Because three times he showed up for services here at the Gospel Tab. I barely knew him. I still don't fully know what drew him here. Um, I'm thinking that maybe Aliquippa Impact had worked with his kids at one point. So he showed up to service here, and two or three times in a row, I think it was three, at the end of service, and this was the only place we were holding service, we didn't have a, a place on Franklin Avenue, three times he came up to me at the end of service um, to talk to me at the end of service, and that's how I got his number. Um, well, one time, strange thing, But Steve Rossi and I are making a hospital visit. This is in the same period of time in which he was showing up for services here. We're making a hospital visit, and um, this guy walks into the front door of the hospital as we're walking out. Um, Apparently, one of his kids was having some kind of health issue. Craig, if you could come play, that'd be great. I'm going to wrap up here. One of his kids had some kind of health issue. Um... And uh, we ended up talking to him, and I think he had Ubered to the hospital or something. I might not be remembering all the details, but he needed a ride home. 
So Steve and I ended up taking him home. And friends, on Franklin Avenue, I remember exactly where we were when we got home from the hospital. We were in a hospital in Pittsburgh. Um, He received salvation in Jesus. And that's about the extent of my relationship with him. A few months after that, he was shot and killed. Under what circumstances, I don't know. Um, I think I shared last week that one thing I'm really coming to terms with is that for me, and this is personal testimony, a lot of the people that I, that God has like somehow put me in their life to tell them about Jesus and to see them respond in faith, they were not the kinds of people who could build up a ministry or who could be faithful tithers or something or good church members or whatever. A lot of them didn't or couldn't make it that far because of the circumstances of their life. But I have a whole list of people. My friend who got shot in the street, the friend who texted me this morning, I have a whole list of people who I just have no doubt that I will see them in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not because they've been good church members. Why? Why is it? It's because Jesus sought them and found them. And, then, and that for all of us, the story at the end really isn't about our ministries, is it? Or about our church or about what we did for God. The story at the end always is about his relentless seeking and finding. And if you want the love of God to go deeper into your heart, then start paying attention to unbelievers. If you want to know how much he loves you, Just start noticing unbelievers because as you do, what will happen? You'll notice when they walk into a hospital or a grocery store or a school. You'll offer them a ride. You'll offer them an invitation to your barbecue. These simple little things. Like this story I'm telling you, on one hand, it's this incredible story of God snatching someone for himself. Right? Um, Somehow in the mystery of God, like, God, why wouldn't you stop the shooting? Like, why wouldn't you? I don't understand all that. But I do, I, what I do know is that God sought and found this guy and snatched him up, you know, for himself. I do know that somehow in that, God has the victory. Well, to pay attention to the unbelievers in our lives is to see that over and over and over again. That's not some incredible victory for the gospel to have or for me or whatever. I think, I'll be honest with you, I think I often don't think about that story a ton because I barely feel like I had anything to do with it. I I talked to him for a few minutes at the end of a service. We, you know, we, we gave him a ride home. I mean, this stuff, it's so small. There's someone who I really respect who likes to say all the time, all Jesus is looking for is a mustard seed. I think that's why today, he'll do a lot with a little bit of faith. I think that's why I'm saying today, if a little bit of faith lets you include a friend in on your party, if a little bit of faith lets you say hello to a neighbor across the street, if a little bit of faith lets you give someone a ride home, whatever, all these things are things that God will use to snatch up for himself the people that he is seeking and finding. And every time I'm close to one of those stories, I'm like, man, God loves us. Man, he loves us. Man, he seeks us and he finds us and he arranges these details so that we cross each other in places that are unexpected and we end up in each other's cars and homes and parties and 
God is at work in all of the seeking and the finding because there are 99 sheep that are found. There's one that is lost. And it is all he thinks about is that one to bring home and to make his own and to save from death. That's what he's doing. He's drawing them to himself. We're going to close this service here.